Experts predict Australia's population to double in the next 50 years, with the Australian Bureau of Statistics forecasting our population to increase to 42 million people by 2056. Um, it's a lot more than the 25 million people we have approximately now. So Australia's infrastructure needs to keep pace with this expected population boom. The federal and state governments are looking to encourage and fund new initiatives aimed at anticipating this population growth by making our cities smarter, curbing congestion in urban population centres, increasing our national supply chain capacity and enhancing connectivity. It's a big topic and so we have some very impressive guests today to help us navigate it. So um, let's meet the panel. So firstly, we have Chris Hayton, Principal of Rothy Lohman Architects. Uh, Chris is based in Melbourne. Um, and so Chris, in 30 seconds or less, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Rothy Lohman? Sure, so I'm a principal of a practice uh, that operates out of three studios here in Melbourne, uh, Sydney and Brisbane. And we've become uh, involved in greenfield uh, development on the back of a, a very big track record in uh, higher residential or high density residential use across Australia. And I think it reflects the, the evolution in thinking about greenfield development as they become more sophisticated and uh, both our clients, the developers and, and their clients, the purchasers have become more savvy about the role that good design plays in creating great places to live, but also now we're starting to see to work closer, etc. So that experience we have in, in yeah, the more traditional higher density, medium density sectors is becoming more and more relevant in greenfield development. Thank you. Yes, and I think we're seeing some changes in the type of projects that we're developing too, which we'll talk about a bit more later. So thank you, Chris. Uh, next, we have Ben Mathers, General Manager of MJH Multi Construction. Uh, ben, please introduce yourself and MJH Multi. Thanks, Andrew. So Ben Mathers, I'm the General Manager of MJH Multi, which is the multi-residential housing business of the McDonald Jones Homes Group. Uh, we predominantly work across the majority of New South Wales with Sydney, the Hunter and the South Coast as our main catchment areas for work. I've been involved in multi-residential projects on medium to large scale across New South Wales and Queensland for about 10 years whilst in Australia, doing work for government, private, uh, developers, publicly listed large uh, residential developers and also non-for-profits and most recently we've started entering into some land lease communities across the Hunter region. Excellent, thank you very much Ben and last but by certainly no means least we have Mike Scott from the Treadstone company. Uh, Mike please let us know a little bit about yourself and Treadstone. Um, okay thanks Andrew, uh, well I've been in the property development industry for many years and started as a home builder um, and the Treadstone Company, I'm the managing director of the Treadstone Company, we provide advice to developers and government and also project management, development management services. Um, I also got another hat I wear, which is the, the chairman of Homeworld, which is a New South Wales beast, which is display villages for builders and also a project in the ACT called Gin and Derry, which is a six star green star project. So involved in a number of different ways in land development of greenfields. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, for your biographies. And um, uh, well, I've just got a few more lines to read before we get started on today's questions for discussion. 
And remember, people that are listening, if you have questions, please use the chat portal uh, on your Zoom uh, screen in order to censor any questions. If you want to direct them to a specific guest, just mention their names, and then I will um, field those questions and, and weave them into today's presentation. So uh, we're up to 112 participants, so pretty good turnout. So um, as we know, today's WebEx Talks is all about greenfield residential developments. Projects where the site or land may have previously been cleared for farming or it might have been completely under, underdeveloped land or undeveloped land, I should say. And these sites are often located on the urban fringe. Either way, the site is largely unimproved in terms of construction prior to the proposed new development taking place. We'll also talk briefly about what's known as brownfield developments. These are also known as urban renewal these days, where prior to redevelopment, the site may have been industrial, factories, those types, those types of things, or even institutional. So they might have previously been schools, hospitals, that type of thing. And these urban renewal sites may be located closer to the city. Either way, it's a process around the change of use for the site on what are generally larger scale projects that we'll investigate today. And they might be land subdivisions, they might be apartment developments, they might be townhouses, it might be a combination of all of these types of things. But we're mainly going to focus on uh, residential. So the change of use of these projects must go through, generally takes several years to progress from concept through feasibility, acquisition, finance and contractual development consent and public consultation, marketing, often including off-the-plan sales, construction and finally handover. Um, so as I said, we're mainly going to be talking about residential class one projects such as townhouses, terraces, single or multiple dwelling developments and we'll also touch on class two projects, apartments. So let's get started. Remember to send your questions uh, in via the uh, chat portal. And the first question I'm going to direct to uh, Chris today from Rothley Lowman Architecture. Um, Chris, I've already provided a brief description of greenfield and brownfield developments, but is there anything that you would like to add that would uh, be um, that would be the appeal of one? Of, oh, okay. So, is there anything that you would like to add that that would uh, you know, indicate the appeal of 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 one over the other? So, for example, you know. A greenfield's more interesting to work on, a brownfield's where we're converting um, or changing the use of an existing site. Um, what can you tell us about your experience with these types of projects? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the first thing is that they're quite different beasts. Um, and they both come with what you could perceive as advantages or, or, or disadvantages. Uh, obviously, with a, a greenfield site, you're very much starting from the get-go, so your control over all components, all facets of the development um, is probably a little bit greater. Uh, that said, there are, there are sensitivities obviously around, you know, in, in Victoria, we have a thing called a, a PSP, which is uh, a precinct structure plan, which is the planning process we need to go through to, to turn a greenfield site into a, uh, a site that can be developed. And there's a fairly rigorous, understandably so, uh, planning process to be adhered to. Um, and that takes time. If, you, if, you're, if you're setting out from, from uh, the, the piece of farmland through to a process where you can develop the land, there's a considerable amount of time and investment involved in getting to the point where there's a, a planning framework that, that you could use. Whereas on a brownfield site, 
there very often might be a rezone that's enabled the brownfield site to be uh, developed as a residential site and the planning controls are probably quite well set up and, and exist and you can get going from the start but the site may, may well be encumbered with contamination or um, you know difficult town planning uh, environment that makes it tricky to develop you've probably got a fair amount of infrastructure already there on a brownfield site that you can tap into whereas at a greenfield site obviously everything you're having to provide uh, and there's the whole road network, the servicing infrastructure, water supply, drainage, etc. That that all needs to come with you. Whereas on a brownfield site, you might be upgrading some of it, but but a large component of it would exist. Um, brownfield sites tend to be uh, per square meter more expensive to to purchase because of where they are. Uh, they're already in areas with significant infrastructure around them, which is an advantage because you might just be developing the housing, you don't have to develop the town centre at the same time, etc. So, so it's a big question, Andrew, I could probably yeah. talk for the entire session about the difference. I'll, I'll the, whole, the, whole topic, the whole topic is huge and it's it, one of those how long is yeah. a piece of string thing, but you know, I've, I've lived in large residential developments that were converted brownfields and the thing that chimed with me was the mention of remediating land and uh, the development that I lived in uh, in the inner west in Sydney uh, had all sorts of issues with toxicity um, which the residents weren't really made aware of at the time when they purchased so you know that was just a particular situation that I was involved in without going into too many details it was eventually resolved but I guess there's all sorts of as you say, considerations, and it's going to vary from from site to site and project to project. I think you could you could really say probably give as many different answers as there are different types of development uh, and different examples of development. That's right, but hopefully it gives everyone a flavour of the the kind of different. Yeah, types. well, you've certainly covered you've certainly covered you know most of the areas. Do do does anyone else have anything to add to that, Mike? Have you got anything that you'd like to add on? on the, the differences, I guess, between redevelopment and greenfield? Um, no, not really. I think, I think Chris has given us a very good summary. It's, they're very, very different. Um, and obviously, in brownfields tends to be much more a three-dimensional built form thing as well, um, with height limits and envelopes and all of those sorts of constraints and things to think about and how you plug into an existing vision for an area where Greenfields is often about making the vision, making it with more of a blank sheet mm. of paper. I mean, there's natural attributes from the land you want to, you want to work with, but uh, the two are very, very different, as Chris has said. Mm. Well, one, one example of a site in Sydney, which is a very famous site at White Bay, down at um, sort of Roselle there, which has been a brownfield site ever since I was five years old. So probably even longer than that, for 50-odd years, that place hasn't operated as a as a power station and that's been sitting there un undeveloped for such a long time and uh, I I'd love to see that brownfield site become something interesting given its location but um, it may never happen in my lifetime, we'll see. You've, so it's, you've a, it's, a, it's an area called the Bays Precinct and I think the state government with, with urban growth has been working on that for many years so hopefully stay tuned and something exciting will happen there. But it's, yeah, these things do take a long time. There's lots of stakeholders involved, so we'll see. Yeah, yeah it's been, been uh, sitting there vacant for a long time. What about you, Ben? Is there anything that, from a builder's perspective that you'd like to add 
when you're contrasting, say, uh, urban renewal with greenfields? Well, I think um, the other two guys have summed it up fairly well. From our point of view, 99% um, of our work is actually greenfields. So we spend a lot of time, like Mike said, creating the vision with a developer or just delivering on their vision. Um, very few of our projects across our entire group are actually carried out on brownfield sites. And the main reason is we tend to be able to get product to market quicker when it's greenfield. And most of the opportunities that have generated over the last five years since we started this business have all been greenfield sites. So we haven't had to venture outside of them boundaries um, as yet. Mm. Thanks for that. Thank you very much, Ben. Um, so we'll go on to the next question, which I'll address to Mike. Um, this is a big subject, as we've said, Mike, and there are so many variables and each situation is going to be dif different. But typically, how long do these projects take to get started? And, and how long could, could the process take from, I guess, first concept through to handover with, a, with a, any, any example you like, really, of a greenfields development? Well, it's, I think you're right straight off the bat there that it is how long is a piece of string and it does I'm aware we've got a national audience and it is different around the country and also I think you said a couple of people from New Zealand and I've done some work over there as well so there are there are a number of subtle differences around the place um, in Sydney in the cities that tend to be older the land holding on the fringe of the cities is often a bit more fragmented um, in Sydney we're working in the northwest and southwest corridors where there's existing rail and some fragmented small acreage farms historically. Um, but if you've got larger land holdings, so we, I think it's more general that we're dealing in larger pieces of land uh, with a single landowner and you are, as Chris identified, trying to put the planning framework in place. And that's normally done off the back of a vision for the site that, that, that someone like Chris is running for us um, in terms of how what you're gonna to bring to the table. But it can take, if, if, there's a, if, there's a, if there's a political will, it can take sort of three years or it can take 10, 15 years um, by the time you're through to turning keys indoors and people moving into the houses that Ben's built. So it's, it depends, as I say, on the environmental constraints and conditions that you need to analyse, um, which is the capacity of the land to be appropriate for development. Depends on if it's been identified as a growth area for many years and there's an expectation in the community that it's going to occur or is it a new idea that can take a bit of time. Uh, it depends on the political will um, because often housing, we've got affordability issues are, are the political issue of the day and there is a, a bit of an energy and inertia to get housing supply going. So there are a number of variables. Um, as I say, whether it's a spot rezoning or part of a larger corridor where there's a lot of infrastructure investment coming in. Um, it, so that, those things all play into it. So um, as I say, three to 10 years, and it depends uh, whether you're the large landowner. Government's often involved in this. Most of our state and uh, governments have a development arm. In New South Wales, it's Landcom or Vic Urban, uh, sorry, Places Victoria now, I believe, or Land Corp in West Australia. So government often plays a leading role in putting that early infrastructure in as well. So um, yeah, it can take a long time or, or it can be a bit quicker depending on how all of those sort of individual items through the filters line up, if you like. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a cast of thousands, really, isn't it, when it comes to all the various stakeholders involved. And, you know, I guess there's so many different ways that these projects can even start, whether it's driven by the developer or driven by a landowner who's looking to exactly. develop their land or whatever. There's so, again, it's, it's a very broad subject. Yeah. Do our other guests have anything to add to what Mike's had to say? No? Okay. So the next question goes to Ben. And this is something which I think is becoming more and more of a trend, Ben. Is it true to say that builders these days, like your own company, MJH Multi, are getting more involved at the early concept feasibility stages? And, and what can you tell us about what that brings to a project? What sort of benefits would that bring to a, uh, say, a large residential greenfield development? Yeah, great question, Andrew. Um, the simple answer is yes, builders are um, more commonly getting involved with developers at early stages of projects now. Um, there's various stages. Uh, we've spent time with developers pre-DA lodgement where we can help developers uh, work out house designs, street um, elevations, how the, you know, the product goes together on a super lot, for instance. That's more commonly done for a townhouse development with the larger developers. In terms of when we go in and do uh, villages on mass scale, generally the DA is lodged and then we may or may not get involved early on during the piece before it came, comes out for pricing. And it really depends on what format the developer wishes to engage in a builder. Are they looking for upfront um, interaction with a builder to look through buildability constraints and improvements and value engineering options? Or are they really looking to have their product that's set and they're just looking for a builder to construct that thereafter? But there's the possibilities are endless. I mean, we one thing that gets missed an awful lot, we feel from our perspective, is the term value management seems to be broadly used where builders can help developers value engineer products to suit, you know, price points or what they're really trying to get. What it doesn't really capture at that piece is engineering opportunities. Early on in the piece, we could be providing assistance with designs to reduce the structural steel elements in properties or the foundations. But once the further along the process, it goes before the, the, the builders involved, um, reduces the volume of opportunities we can necessarily provide to a project. But I would have to say, of all the projects where we've had early involvement, um, it's definitely helped the process, definitely. You can, I guess if, if you get involved in those early stages, you can sort of certainly talk about the buildability throughout the concept and things, logistics, getting materials to site, um, you know, dealing with topography of the land and all those sorts of things. Um, plus, you know, you have experience from other projects where you've achieved certain aesthetics and certain um, worked outside the square maybe with materials and, and, some, and stuff like that. So I, I would imagine that it would require, and they'll direct this to Chris, when builders are involved early, it's probably more, a little bit more of a collaborative design process, is it, with, with a bit more input from the constructor? Yeah, which, which we love actually, because um, that's when you discover hidden opportunity. Um, if, we, if we all keep doing things the way we've been doing them, then we don't actually 
innovate, we don't take things forward, we don't improve the product that we're, we're providing for people who are going to live in these houses ultimately. And, you know, I think each builder we work with has a slightly different take on it. And so we tune design to suit a particular, you know, subcontractor trade that they're interested in exploring, you know, using or uh, a different methodology that they might have. They might have prefab componentry as, as a model that they're running and they want to test it a bit. Um, so we're really uh, the, well, the opposite of precious about design in that sense in that uh, we think by collaborating with, with, you know, our clients as developers and with builders at the table from an early stage, uh, we expose the opportunity to, to deliver really innovative, exciting and genuinely uh, kind of useful innovation to the market. It sort of makes sense, doesn't it? And I imagine, Mike, that from the developer's perspective, anything that's going to, and I, I don't like using this term, but I guess add value to the project from a buildability perspective and a practicality perspective, and then also getting, you know, what are your thoughts as somebody who often represents you know, large developers on these types of projects where they do get the builders involved earlier? Um, absolutely. I think it's essential. I uh, couldn't agree more. We're, and it's important, I think, as projects get more complex and we're dealing with more market segments and trying to offer a greater suite of uh, housing options across a site, it's important to have the marketing people in at the start and the builders in all the way through and, and people in the project team associated from front to back on the project. I was great to see that Ben is one of the guests today because Ben and I have done this exactly this on one project called Red Bank out at North Richmond. There's a medium density precinct within a master planned community out there um, uh, called uh, called the Gallery and an architect did the concept designs and got the DAs and then we worked with Ben on buildability and uh, a number of other issues and then we were fortunate enough to have um, um, MJH multi build the project for us and it was a great outcome. It sold, it sold very, very well. And um, often the builders know things that you don't see necessarily on the plans. Things like the amount of supervision, how long scaffolding's up, how you're removing waste from the site. There's a lot of things that don't necessarily get rated up in a bill of quantities that a builder can help you with in terms of speed of construction and, and cost and value. So it's a very, very worthwhile process, yes. Yeah, and, and material selection as well. I mean, to get a plug-in for WeatherTech's, less waste, better for the environment, faster to install. Anyway, that's one plug-in. Um, so the next, um, the next uh, question actually is gonna go to Mike. And I've had a couple of questions come in from Adrian and from Lindsay. I'm going to combine these questions with, that you've sent in with questions that we've pre-prepared. So hang in there. Um, but Mike, um, just when it comes to maybe selecting a site or dealing with a site, uh, what sort of features would you commonly look for in a site with a view to developing a larger scale project? I guess we've already touched on this a little bit and to combine Lindsay's question, he's made the comment, I assume it's a he, it could be a she, it's one of those names, but uh, Lindsay's made the comment, uh, brownfield sites typically rely on existing physical infrastructure and social infrastructure i.e. schools, retail, emergency services, public transport, because they're already in place. Greenfield sites need to address these issues. How does a developer address their responsibilities to provide either land allocation or actual facilities? Probably another, how long is a piece of string question, but I'll send it to you anyway, Mike, and see what you can do with it. 
Um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, how do, how do you find a site? Well, you look, it's, you can be buying a site with the existing planning framework in place, or you can be trying to secure land earlier in the, in the development pipeline, if we call it that, before it's rezoned. And there's obvious benefits to that as you're buying the land generally at a lower price because you, you, you're taking the risk of getting the rezoning through. And that works different in different jurisdictions. In New South Wales, it goes straight from unzoned to zoned. In other places, there's urban deferred or there's future, future residential. So there can be some certainty about the process. But um, these days, there's a lot of stakeholders involved and um, the, the expectations around um, infrastructure and community facilities are, are quite high and reasonably so. Um, it depends on the size of the site, whether you're going to be developing those things and putting them in in kind as part of the project. You, you prefer to do it yourself as a developer generally because you can control the outcome a bit more or whether you're paying into a contribution scheme and, a, and it's being provided by the local council at a future date. Um, and, and there's a lot of criticism, uh, obviously sometimes very reasonably, about delays in those infrastructure items. There's you know, parts of Sydney and other places where the contributions have been collected many, many years ago, and they're still waiting on enough to do something from a piece of land that didn't get developed, or there's particular issue in, in holding that infrastructure back. Um, so yes, you do look for sites with, with those attributes around, obviously public transport, schools, all the things that we all ex would like, you know, like in our life close to home to make life, that, that's great. And, um, and obviously that you've got a willing vendor at a reasonable price. That's what makes a project go, so. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, as, as I think you mentioned, there are a lot of costs put on to developers quite often, isn't there, aren't there, in terms of uh, contributions towards local infrastructure and that type of thing, uh, especially in some of the greenfield sites where there might be special levies and so on to help to cover road upgrades and that type of thing, which also add to the cost of construction. Yeah, and certainly being involved in, in, in an organisation, UDIA, at a national level, it is very different across the jurisdictions, across the states and territories. But in, a, in Sydney, for example, the contributions for local infrastructure can be you know, 90000 a block, and for state infrastructure, 30000 a block. And then you've also got to remember that we've got GST on new housing, but not on established housing. So, you know, you've got, you know, for 80 grand out of a $900,000 house and land package going off to the federal government in GST as well. So yeah, there's, there's, there's large contributions to all three levels of government, but that's just a cost of doing business. And then in New South Wales, we've got stamp duty as well and yet another yeah, tax. Stamp, so stamp duty when you buy the site and then when you sell it to the customer too. So yeah, two rounds yeah. of that as well. Yeah, so they're all, they're all taxes. They're all things and, that add to the cost the, of ridiculous cost of real estate in this country. Yeah. And as the development process has got longer now, often lands in the cycle for two years. So there's two years worth of land tax to pay as well. So, Wow, yeah. And do our other guests have anything to say on this? Uh, actually, before you answer, Chris, I guess this rolls on from what Mike's just been telling us. Uh, if you can tell us a little bit about the design process at the early stages and what factors need to be considered. So for example, um, Mike's found a site and put a deal together with various stakeholders and then they come to you at Rothy Lohman and say, we want to develop whatever they want to develop there. How does that process kind of start as an architect and, and what are some of the things that you need to consider? 
Uh, yeah, that, that's another huge question. Um, <laughs> if I might just uh, just add a footnote to the the previous question because it's really oh, interesting. What yeah. about? Yeah, you know, we we talk about housing a lot, but then there are the associated things that everybody needs uh, around them, and, and I think the question was alluding to the fact that brownfield sites sometimes have a lot of the infrastructure there already, whereas in greenfield sites you've got to build that as well. Um, I think in greenfield uh, sites and the development of those areas, it's actually easier to plan for uh, because you go through a, a pretty detailed and comprehensive uh, planning process in order to rezone the land that accounts for that. And it's relatively easy to measure the density and future populations on these sites. I actually think um, it's possibly harder now in our cities where, you know, rightly so, we're increasing density, but it's a struggle to provide the associated infrastructure because there isn't that comprehensive ability to plan a large tract of land. So, so schools might be full and it's very hard to add schools. You know, we, we might have saturated the amount of green space that we have around. It's hard to create green space in cities. So it's almost the inverse of, of what you might expect in that it's uh, it's a fairly critical issue for both, but I think it's, uh, on paper at least, it's easier to plan for in a greenfield site now. So it's one of the big challenges of urban regeneration is provision for all of the associated infrastructure. To go back to, to what you really asked me, um, where do you start with design? I think the first thing we ask our clients is, look, what is what is the vision here? It's great to hear Van and Mike talk about a vision because without actually a specific vision for, for a place, uh, it's really hard to get a handle on how to start the design. And, and it's something we workshop a lot with our clients. And a vision has to be really specific and unique, I think, so that we create diverse, you know, great cities for people to live in. It's, it's, it's probably not good enough to say, well, we just want to copy what we did down the road because there'll be reasons why copying what you did down the road doesn't fit the site or it doesn't fit the demographic that are going to come and live here, etc. So that for us is always the starting point. What's, what's special? What is unique about this particular development? What are we trying to do? How are we trying to innovate? How are we trying to be progressive, meet market demand? Um, and, you know, we, we push our clients quite hard uh, deliberately in a, in a really open book way and, and suggest ideas, some of which are nonsense, but we, we like to see how people react to them because it gives us clues about how they think, how they see the world, how their, their clients, their customers uh, would like to live, you know, so, so, so it's a, it's a really, uh, for us, a really interactive, generous process. Uh, we have a phrase called innovation that we use a lot, which is you can't, we're not pretending we've got to reinvent the way we, we all live in one fell swipe, but what little things can we introduce that improve the quality of the environments that we, we, we're asking people to live in in our cities? Um, so that's where it starts. And from there, it's a progressive process of, uh, workshops for us we invite our clients our, you know our office doors usually are open every day of, of the year and our clients are more than welcome to drop in 
we far rather work on the journey together. It's a process we call, uh, rightly or wrongly, working ugly, which shocks our clients. <laughs> we say we're going to work ugly. What we mean by that is we're not afraid to table unresolved ideas, you know, things that might not be beautiful, but we're going to make beautiful, just to, to tease out with the builders, with Ben and his team, whether it is feasible, whether it's a good idea or, or whether it's a really poor idea. Um, and from that, we find that we, we get to a place that nobody else has got to. You know, we, we've evolved a, a house design or a medium density precinct with new ideas incorporated into it that commercially make a lot of sense. That, that from a viability perspective, from a sustainability perspective, are just kind of setting the notch a little bit higher each time we work. Thank you. And I was just, sorry to interrupt you before, I was just going to say you've got all of these design um, ambitions or goals, but at the same time, like you mentioned, you've always got to keep the end user in full focus, don't you? I mean, you know, the developer might have all these great ideas, but if it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. So, I mean, it's always a business transaction as much as it, it we all want to live in beautiful spaces and and affordable spaces, which are kind of maybe two opposing forces to an extent. Um, yeah, we've always got to keep the end user in mind. And on that point, I guess, Adrian has sent through a question and it's to do with council and planning. And I guess it dovetails into our next question, which is also going to go to you, Chris. Um, give us some examples of some of the guidelines that you have to follow involved in the preparation for the DA and as Adrian has asked um, uh, yeah when council codes and standards are proposed to be exceeded so I believe that there might be sometimes when councils will have their LEP and they'll have all of their design guidelines but then they expect you to go beyond that I guess when that happens and just in general what are we what are we looking at here to get things through council from a design perspective yeah, I, you know, it's a, another really good question. Uh, I'm a big fan of what you might call merit-based planning decisions. So where you're bringing genuine quality um, to, to a process or to a project um, that you get in some sense rewarded by the planning scheme for doing that. I think far too many planning schemes operate by, by by sort of setting the lowest common denominator as the place that they're going to start and finish. Whereas for everybody in this forum, what we're interested in doing is actually not the lowest common denominator. We're actually genuinely interested in quality and environment and um, building great cities and great places. And to be incentivized to do that by the planning scheme, I think is a really smart idea. So there are, Cases, uh, you know, Melbourne metropolitan areas uh, where that, that is the case. And if you improve, let's call it the, uh, the public infrastructure at the ground floor, or the lower levels of your building, that they'll, the planning authorities will consider greater height than if you didn't do that as a, as a, you know, a fair trade, if you like, for the city on private land, you might provide a park or, or a, a, you know, a public facility 
uh, as part of your development and it's recognized uh, in return and on those mechanisms can operate everywhere through the planning system so good design should should realize the opportunity um, for for a, a kind of reciprocal arrangement in the planning system i think whereas if you're just going to stick to the lowest common denominator then obviously there are people around doing that and there needs to be a, a cap on on what what can be done under that threshold but uh for me good design should should enable a conversation with planning authorities uh, that allows you to explore the real potential of sites uh, and the real opportunities and if you you need to have smart designers it's not a sell for us it's a sell there are plenty of good designers out there who sometimes find that they're hamstrung and aren't able to realize opportunities that sites offer because the planning scheme is written to just prevent the worst possible outcome rather than incentivize the best possible outcome. Yeah, because these are a little bit like the construction code itself. They're sort of a minimum standard, aren't they, as opposed to how you can create great spaces. And, and I guess, Mike, from a developer's perspective, um, it's going to be far more appealing to your client base if you create something of beauty and something that's going to impress people. Um, and I think, you know, what Chris was saying before about a lot of projects that we see, especially in parts of Sydney where, where I've been fortunate to live, such as parts of the inner west, um, we see some developments which are really quite horrible <laughs> and you sort of as chris said these were opportunities to do something they may not have needed to spend that much more money to do something a lot more with a lot more vision so from a developer's perspective i guess it's 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 important to have um projects which are beautiful and, and appeal oh yeah exactly and i agree with chris 100 percent. i think anything's a mixture of process and and prescribed outcome and one of the one of the worst one of the things that development industry does is they sit there and give mixed messages. We'd like certainty, but equally we'd like flexibility. Uh, but flexibility has to be rewarded. So I agree with Chris. I think if you if if you can have the codes that are really dual codes, where there is a certain minimum standard that's demanded um, to protect against developers that that uh, you know want to do the wrong thing or just take advantage commercially. Um, but then equally, if you're prepared to go to the table with a vision for something that delivers a bit more, a bit more to the community, it might deliver more affordability, sustainability, not just uh, a design outcome, that you are able to have that conversation and get some bonuses in some areas because of the trade-off. Um, I mean, it's interesting, a lot of planning codes read, they put diversity. We want housing choice and diversity right at the front, page one. And then they, all the way through, they give you one minimum standard and then they sit there and go, oh, we just got the one outcome. What a surprise. Um, so, you know, it's, I think we do want flexibility and certainty and that can be delivered if a code is able, as Chris says, to respond to, um, to a performance-based uh, application. Fair enough. Ben, did you have anything to add to that at all from, I guess, from a builder's perspective? Um, I think the question's more tailored for a developer and an architect, but I have to say in the greenfield developments that we've been a part of over the, you know, the say the last five years, whether they're um, large scale Australian developers, you know, 
ASX listed or smaller private developers. I can definitely confirm this a genuine drive and commitment that I've seen to provide great streetscapes, open spaces around in the communities that they're building. There's no doubt about it out here in uh, the western corridors of Sydney, southwest, northwest. There's definitely some great open spaces and communities that have grown substantially over the last few years whilst creating large-scale housing developments but it's been integrated very well um i think that's probably a commit uh, some praise for the developers that are doing that on the brownfield side you know i'd be i probably wouldn't be able to comment sorry about the background noise here i'm actually at the coroma studio in collins street in alexandria because i've been on the road all day today and i no longer live in sydney so uh, they've been very um, generous to let me use their space, but I think they've got a party going on next door. So sorry if there's a lot of background noise. Um, the next question, Ben, I guess is about the early stages. Can you tell us some of the highlights of the tender process and the contract arrangements for some of these larger residential projects? What are the standouts in that process? Well, there's a couple of options. Um, some channels developers will take are to negotiate a deal with a builder. Some may be to tender the project out for a competitive tender. Um, both have their own merits, both have their own disadvantages. Um, but 90% of the projects we see that are negotiated have come back to one of the earlier questions where we've been involved up front. We're there with the developer and the architect and it's our it's our role at that point to make sure we can make a commitment to deliver on the developer's vision of what they want the development to look like. But also we have a great understanding of the end user's requirements, needs, wants, because we generally are the people that are managing them, whether it's through the build post construction. So I think through the tender phase, Generally, they're quite a short period. It's very hard to get a grip from a builder's perspective on the overall needs, requirements, and the level of detail that's generally given to you to get through all of that and understand it within a four week period, which is generally a tender timeframe. And through that period, the want to get on site increases from developers. So the speed from lodging a tender to being awarded to starting a project generally is very quick um, and that's where I think some of the wins with value engineering and design enhancements buildability enhancements gets lost which could have been done pre that tender phase um, helping the developer out and then moving into that speed to get to site um, but they both have their own merits um, different companies have property requirements as well, whereas some of the private guys don't. And it's how that the developers feel comfortable engaging that builder to move forward through that tender or pricing phase. Because I know in New South Wales, there are some plans uh, by the ABCB, or I think the building commissioner, to review the whole design and construct um, model uh, in light of some of the issues that we've seen with quality of construction. So it'll be interesting to see where that leads. And um, I think 
just in my little bit of experience uh, on the surface as a manufacturer's support or a supplier, um, we are seeing uh, more and more at the moment design and construct contracts as opposed to hard dollar tender. And as you mentioned before, if you've got that relationship with the developer at the beginning of the project, uh, construction management was probably everybody's ultimate dream or goal, but um, you know, you really do have to have a very strong relationship for that to work. Um, does anyone want to say anything about contracts or um, uh, awarding contracts to builders before we move on? Uh, just quickly, I think it, I take your point about design and construct, but I think it's always important to make to just recognise how much housing is delivered through a design and construct model using construction loans to mum and dad purchases. So you go to a display village, you look at a home from a home builder, build it on your block. So um, the, there is regulatory creep, sometimes unintended, and I take the points on large sites, particularly apartment sites, cladding, performance of special services and other things where there is issues with design and construct. But I just want to point out that the cottage building industry, particularly project homes, is very different. It works on a design and construct model and it does it very well. Yeah, sorry, Mike. I was probably more referring oh, to okay. apartments and it's okay. in reviewing some of the reviewing some of the proposed legislation. I don't think they realised exactly what they were doing, so I just make. Oh, it. okay. So luckily, you're there to uh, to keep an eye on things. Well, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> yeah, um, Chris. Another question for you: um, How important is sustainability uh, as an architect uh, when it comes to you know, your design solutions and product selections? Uh, increasingly so, and, and rightly so, I would say. Um, I think um, that the consciousness amongst the industry of the role that we play in, in, a, in a much bigger picture is, is rapidly changing. And that, uh, you know, through some of the uh, national building codes that we see, particularly for commercial office, etc. We're starting to see legislation catch up with uh, some some other uh, countries, such as the the USA or Europe, etc. Where, to be frank, uh, they're miles ahead of where we are in terms of sustainability uh, in the built environment. And I, I just think we've reached a point where everybody in our industry needs to acknowledge the importance of sustainability and all work together uh, to, to improve the performance of our industry through product selection, through simple things like the orientation of houses makes a huge difference to their energy efficiency, to the levels of insulation that we use in our building fabric, etc. Not all of these are easy questions to answer, uh, you know, and some of them do come with a cost impost. But the bigger cost impost is to not do anything about it now, and to bury our heads in the sand and pretend it'll go away as an issue. It's, a, it's I think, a, a pretty critical issue. Um, but we can't leave it to the, to, the, to the big players to sort out. You know, we've all got to play our role. We've all got to become more responsible in the way that we we specify as architects that the way we build and the way we choose to, to just simply set out site plans etc because because the difference that a, the 90 degree rotation in a in a house type can have on its environmental performance is colossal mm. no and um 
I, I think the, uh, the other issue around the environment and sustainability, whether you're building a one-off home or you're doing an apartment development or you're doing townhouses, is I think that more and more end users are looking for better performance, better thermal performance. They're looking for, for, for buildings which uh, use more sustainable and renewable materials. Um, you know, timber, especially if it's sustainably sourced, is, is probably one of the best construction materials that we can use. And not only in terms of cladding, where we can use timber cladding, but think about flooring, ceramic tiles versus timber flooring, uh, steel frames versus timber frames, and, and the list goes on. Where you can use sustainably sourced um, timber, you are generally doing um, the environment a favour. So it's, uh, it's just one thing to, to consider, and we do a CPD on that. Um, and um, Mike, from a developer's perspective, I would imagine there's a certain amount of appeal for customers if the, if the house or the, the apartment or the townhouse is, is more efficient in terms of its thermal performance and also, um, you know, uses materials which are uh, better for the environment. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly think so. I think there's people want to do the right thing by the environment, but as Chris already identified, there is a cost with some of these things. And if it's the difference between you having a fourth bedroom uh, or just a three bedroom home, it is a trade off. Um, so I think the regulators need to be, you know, set, get their minds around what they're trying to do here. It's very, it's very awkward for industry to have regulations that prevent certain materials and certain things, yet they're still allowed to be on the market. If you're going to, if you're going to say that things aren't the right sort of thermal performance or the right sort of environmental performance, then regulate them out of the market. Don't make it the responsibility of the builder and the developer to tell the purchaser that that's the case, because unfortunately that's the situation at the moment. So it's very hard to get information on on the the benefit in terms of water usage and, and energy usage. People certainly want it, uh, but it's it's hard to communicate that at the point of sale to home buyers. So uh, I think everyone's happy to sign up to that idea and certainly wants to do the right thing by the environment. But the question is, how much are they prepared to pay to do the right thing by the environment? And and the point you make about it being it's driven by the market but it's not really being regulated or encouraged by the government. And a lot of the environmental uh, initiatives that we see are very much market driven. Um, yeah. We have a little bit of government involvement with things like BASICs and NATHERS and those types of programs, but there's not a lot of incentive from any level of government, except maybe local government, to be more environmentally attuned to the product selections that we make and so on. And I think that when you have manufacturers making claims about products, you need to have those claims assessed by third party certification companies, organisations like Global Green Tag and so on. So, yeah, I think your point about um, um, the, the government needs probably to do more to incentivise the use of more environmental everything in construction and even in cars and in, in everything that we do, which consumes energy and resources. Yeah, I think just quickly on that too, there's another group involved in this, the valuers and the banks. Mm. And at the moment, the bank, if you want to do an upgrade in your kitchen to granite and all sorts of expensive materials, they treat that 20,000 on their home loan the same as they would 20,000 for energy saving and water saving devices. When in fact, the, the HEM as they call it, the household monthly expenses are going to benefit from those 
environmental outcomes. So you should be able to access further loan facilities for the right outcomes and not be always treated the same. So the valuers and the banks need to come on the journey as well if this stuff's going to become mainstream and buyers are going to be prepared to sign up for it. And I believe in New Zealand, when you buy a house, even old stock, they do have a way of um, giving you a, like a, a star rating on the performance of the yeah. house, depending on the aspect and the glazing and all these other factors. Even if it's a 30, 40 year old home, they have some kind of assessment on the thermal performance of, of, of the house. So I, cer I certainly think there's, there's lots of room for improvement. And I think that anything that is happening in the industry, a lot of it is being driven by manufacturers and the designers and the architects and the developers. Um, so Ben, today's talk has been big picture and we've covered some big topics. We must remember our sponsors, WeatherTechs. So my question to you is how long have you been using WeatherTechs on MGH multi-projects? And in your opinion, what benefits are there on, in using it on, on larger scale residential developments, for example? Well, I've been using WeatherTech's products for about eight years now. Um, but here at MJH Multi, when I started this business five years ago with McDonnell Jones, um, we've used WeatherTech's products at various times on various projects throughout that five-year period. My knowledge of the products you sell on that is very good, but in terms of technical data and sustainability data, um, probably less so. So I thought, you know, the best thing I've seen from WeatherTech is the support network you guys offer a builder. And it's very similar to the chain of effect that we were talking about before, where the builder is engaged to help the developer. And our job is to help meet their vision and then deliver the product. Very similar for a supplier to a builder. And one thing we've experienced with WeatherTechs over the multiple projects we've done is the early engagement of WeatherTechs to help provide accurate information and details on specific product that can be used on different aspects of buildings. And that might be even different products being used on the same house in terms of the size of the board, the thickness of the board, etc., or the intended look that we're looking for. Um, and then that support has really been carried through all the way into the construction phase where every project I've been involved in, uh, WeatherTechs have offered on-field support on that first house we're putting together to make sure that all of your technical information and advice that you require the installers to do that we're meeting them obligations. One thing I would say is WeatherTechs have a very strict policy on the board being put and the cladding being put together exactly how their technical requirements and recommendations advises. So that on-field support comes out and then can clarify and acknowledge that the board has been done correctly. And I think from the in, an installation method, from a builder's perspective, it's very important that it is installed correctly, not just for aesthetic reasons, but the longevity and performance of that product being on these houses. So, Definitely the product we're very happy with and we do promote your product a fair bit through other channels we do. Um, but I'd have to say the biggest asset you have from an MJH Moldy perspective is the support that you provide us as a builder 
to ensure that the works we carry out are to the highest quality we can do. Well, thank you. Um, we appreciate that feedback. And, and your point on the correct type of installation it is different to other materials such as fibre cement um, in how it's installed. But is it true to say that uh, it's generally quicker um, with the accessories that we offer and so on? Once you actually understand where the text, we often get feedback from, from builders that it is less time on site compared with some of the other products. Is that what you find as well? Yeah, definitely. And I think it, in terms of the speed, it comes back to, again, selecting the right product for the right application. And where you have various sizes of the same board, whether it's two meters in height, two and a half, three meters in height, just making sure the right quantities of materials are turning up to the site and they're allocated to the right area of each house. Um, and then someone on site to check and make sure, validate that the works are being done exactly how they were intended to be, certainly increases the speed of construction. And, and I think also once people get the, they understand the product, the feedback I get from builders and architects is, hey, I've used this on my own house and I love it. And when someone comes to you, and that happens so often at trade shows, I come up to the stand and say, it'll be an architect or it'll be a builder and often end users, but they say, I've got it in my own home and I love it. You can't get better feedback than that. Um, and it has a lot of benefits, as, as most of our viewers know. But uh, anyway, there's our second big plug. Thank you very much, WeatherTechs, for sponsoring today's event. Um, getting back to greenfield developments in general, and this is something I'm going to ask you all to contribute to, but I'll probably ask Mike first. Um, how have you seen greenfield residential projects, designs evolve or concepts evolve over the past five to 10 years? And what does the future look like, do you think, with the types of things that we're building around residential? And, and here, I guess we're talking everything, but maybe more the multi-unit townhouse style as opposed to uh, your house and land type projects. Yeah, sure. The, oh, I think the last 10 years is really this, you know, this century, uh, although we're 20 years in already, but uh, the suburbs of the, of the end of the 20th century were very much car dependent uh, you know, mono families, two parents, two kids, Holden or Ford, very much escaping the city, all that sort of idea was the idea of the suburbs. But now we've got the suburbs of the 21st century where the buyers are much more diverse. We're dealing with a much greater and wider um, group of, of people across across the, the market that needs needs to be housed and they need greater choice. So master plan communities have to have a whole range of attributes. And as I mentioned before, Ben's worked on a, on a medium density precinct within a master plan community out at North Richmond in Sydney. Um, and so mixing, mixing that diversity in has already started to emerge. There's a lot of demand for different housing types within master plan communities. Often a young family will move out there and then the grandparents want to follow them. Um, or So we've, we've got the, and also culturally diverse, um, Caled cultural and linguistic diversity of our communities that's changing as well. So we've got to, and we're doing a lot of work at that, with that at Homeworld and our builders on, on responding to those markets. So environmental issues, as we mentioned before there, and, and sustainability, that's on the radar and has been, is very much surfacing and affordability isn't going anywhere. So not only do we have to deliver all that, we've got to do it at an affordable price tag as well. So I think, I mean, the, two, the big demand change I see in the future is the boomers getting, because we've always had, immigration and Australia has been a growing country for years 
forever with, really with immigration, uh, or for certainly for a long time. And we've now got this one-off intergenerational thing occurring now where boomers are getting to retirement age more and more, and their kids, the boomerangs as I call them, because they keep moving out and back of home, back to home, the boomerangs are trying to get into the into the housing market, and we've had record um, well housing ownership, home ownership in the under 35 age brackets has been falling very, very quickly. So I think it's going to be about diversity, obviously more sustainability um, and, and finding affordable ways for people to buy homes. They're really the demand drivers and it's a trade-off as to how we can achieve that. So that's, that's in a nutshell what we'll be trying to do. Yeah, thank you. And, and there's something I only just, I've heard of build to rent where we're seeing more developers building generally apartment buildings, maybe other types of building as well, but generally uh, apartments to rent, which we haven't seen as much in Australia until recently. And then the other one which I only came across this week was something called co-living. Are you familiar with co-living? Or, uh, or, or if not, I can ask Chris. But I was if just co-living co means 20-year-old kids that won't move out, I'm very familiar with it. But um, <laughs> if it means... I, it's, I think it's more of a European type model and it's it's something that's on the agenda here, particularly with community housing providers and smaller household sizes, certainly with um, an ageing demographic, loneliness is an issue. Um, so there, yes, it's a growing area. It's difficult with our very structured first mortgage arrangements and principal place of residence, tax laws and all of those things as to how those things work, whether they're a managed scheme, whether they're a company with shares, so there's a lot of work to do in that space. Landcom in New South Wales is doing a lot of work uh, with different tenancy models. So that's to, certainly to be looked at. Um, and, and in terms of build, build to rent, yes, in Australia, we don't have listed companies that, that run rental communities like they do in other places. Uh, very much our, our rental stock is owned by mums and dads investors um, with, with negative gearing and, and, and other investment uh, drivers. So there's certainly things that are on the radar and I think industry and the market would welcome them. Mm. Yeah, well, the co uh, the co living that um, that I was reading about this morning, actually, they're talking about even strangers living under the same roof, where they might have pretty much their own kind of bedroom, bathroom thing, but share a kitchen, living area, and I believe they're rental type situations. I don't know if you can if you can buy them. And the other big growth market up until COVID, sadly, is the student accommodation market, which has been absolutely enormous in Australia and, and very profitable. My, my partner up until recently worked for one of the, um, the larger uh, student accommodation brands. And um, yeah, that's, that's also a, a growing market. Um, and, and Chris, uh, what, what comments have you got about the future of, of I guess, residential developments in general? Oh. <laughs> um, probably. I mean, there's some really interesting topics there. Whether they're quite going to make it into the greenfield space, build to rent, etc. Um, I think we're a few years away from that. We're actually, I think we have four genuine build to rent projects running at the moment. Um, one with a, a New York-based uh, institutional fund here in that's uh, operating in West Melbourne, um, and. There are a few tax changes that need to happen in Australia before Build to Rent really finds its feet, uh, but they are being talked to, talked about, certainly at state level. Uh, GST is a bit of an issue because being more of a federal tax, it's not as easy to 
to change. Um, but it is it is going to be a growing sector of the market, and we're finding that um, you know a, a certain cohort of our clients are, are recognizing if the build to rent market is a little bit more sophisticated, you get better looked after. Uh, long t longer your your tenancy in a building, the better it is for the operator. So there are maintenance regimes, there are better amenity spaces, etc. Other dad investors are going to be competing with a, a much larger pool of built to rent properties, not tomorrow, but in the next five to 10 years. And so that's having an influence on, on all kinds of residential development that is uh, looking to the investment market. Uh, but in the greenfield space, look, I think the fact that we're now very active in that space is probably testament to the way that it's evolved. Uh, it's not 15 years ago a place where we were doing any work, but with the increase in particularly medium density within uh, the broader greenfield space, um, for all the reasons that, that Mike very clearly articulated about affordability and people wanting to stay local and family staying together and perhaps not traveling too far in your car to go to work or, or to go to school. All of these things are having a big influence over, over the changing pattern of greenfield development. And I think one of the things we need to grapple with is that you know, we come back to the planning scheme. A lot of the planning schemes were, were written to accommodate how greenfield development was evolving five to 10 years ago. And, they're in place. Actually, they probably need updating to accommodate more mixed use, more commercial development in real spaces. Uh, I think what we're going through at the moment is only a hype the fact that, you know, genuinely more people spend not all their time, but a bit more of their time working from home. The homes need to evolve so that you're not sitting on the end of your best bed working at a working at a kind of makeshift desk that was a bespoke workplace at home, that if you work for ANZ, it may well be that ANZ have a whole series of satellite offices that are locally distributed around uh, places like Greenfield Development, rather than everybody piling into the CBD, into a lift, into the high rise. There, there are going to be some lasting changes, vaccine or not, from from what we've been through or will have been through in 24 months. So it's really interesting. It's really dynamic. Um, it's not frightening. It's a real opportunity. Um, and, you know, it's, it's great to be part of it. Excellent. Thank you very much. And the last word from our panel today will go to Ben. Ben, what are your thoughts on, on um, what the future looks like for these types of developments from a builder's perspective. Yeah, just following on from Chrissy's comment there about, you know, pandemics and the Greenfields developments will probably look a lot different in the future to what we thought they would look in January this year. Um, and the type of product that's been provided, uh, some of the stuff, the project that myself and Mike did a couple of years ago, you know, I wasn't sure whether the, the terrace stuff would sell 70 kilometers from the CBD, but there's a market for that. And I think it's providing the right product for the right um, area. 
we're seeing some opportunities in Western Sydney at the moment for like live work buildings, um, shop top housing, so to speak, where there's some, some of the larger developers are looking at opportunities where instead of people leaving their house and having to go and find a shop, they can do that locally or even below the residence that they're living in. So all of these greenfield sites that we see now in 10, 15 years time, they won't be considered so far from the CBD. The further out we go, you know, they'll almost amalgamate into these other places. And some of the information we see that we get provided from developers are they're greenfield sites currently. Um, and then we all talk about the CBDs as we know them now, whereas even in Sydney right now, they're saying in 10, 15 years time, Parramatta could be bigger than the CBD in the city. And these greenfield sites that we've got right now are only a 20 minute train ride to Parramatta. They're half the distance straight away. So I think we'll see a lot of green space, probably more space around some of the houses as the house land gets smaller. Even some of the projects we're coming across right now south coast of New South Wales and up towards the Hunter region where predominantly our other brands like Mac Jones would build large single-story homes and greenfield developments. Part of these greenfield developments now are getting cut up in small parcels in areas for townhouse construction to offer that alternate accommodation method or product to the market. And we think over the next five, ten years there'll be a real surge in that across them regions as well. Excellent. Well, thank you very much to everybody on our panel today. Um, just in closing, if any, and thank you to our audience as well for uh, joining in today. If any of you have any questions about today's event, please uh, email us at weathertext at weathertext.com.au or sales at weathertext.com.au. Um, so a big thank you goes to Chris Hayton from Rothy Lohman Architecture. Um, Mike Scott from the Treadstone Company and Ben Mathers from MJH Multi Constructions. And once again, thank you to everybody who attended today. Um, and thank you for all the people who sent in questions and comments as well on our uh, chat line. So all the best everybody and um, we'll see you at our next Webinex. And thanks again to the panel. Bye bye now. Thank you.